Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Arena on Air. We have another exciting episode featuring the Arena Civil Dialogues event that happened on January 14th. 2019. This week we explored the topic of must we be tribal and different thoughts about how we as humans build communities around us and how individuality can shine through. The Arena Civil Dialogues is powered by Exelon. Enjoy! My name is Tolela Manu. Can you say that? <laughs> From South Africa. Um, and I'm in the sociology department at George Washington University. And I'm delighted, I'm really, really honored to, to have been asked to moderate this very distinguished panel of people whose work I've followed for decades. Um, I mean, I remember way back, um, I was still at graduate school, just crazy reading Amitai's work. So the very idea that one day I would come and moderate his 90th birthday gives me goosebumps even as I speak. Um, And so as I was trying to think about something wise to say, to live up to the moment, I found myself really speechless, which is very rare uh, with me. So I reached out to a friend um, and I said, what do I say in something like this? And his name is Harry Boyd, and he's done a whole lot of work. Um, and he sent me a, a line, which I'm just going to read before I ask Amitai to um, give his opening remarks. Amitai Etzioni has long been a stalwart among public intellectuals, committed to an inclusive, community-grounded citizenship. And I found that line just to be so apt in so many ways. So I'm not going to take much more time than to ask um, Amitai to to share uh, his words of wisdom. And then after that, um, we will open it up for discussion uh, with Bill and Isabel. And I will then open it up for questions. But for starters, uh, please welcome Professor Amitai Etzioni. Uh, thank, thank you very, very much for already a very uh, generous and heartwarming evening. I'd like to pivot from here on and not talk about a person, but let's celebrate an idea. So, birthday party's over, let's talk about community. So, I uh, was given, not as a birthday gift, but because I had to be quiet for the last seven dialogues, because I was the moderator, I was given an extra minute today uh, to make up. Uh, the best day boy gets to be spoiled. So, so uh, when I think about the question uh, before us, must we be tribal, I can't help think about it without. Uh, think about the fact that behind uh, many of these discussions we have, uh, philosophical, ethical, public policies, they're hiding behind them competing concepts of human nature. On, on the one hand, we have one which sees the individual as the center of the universe and the whole world swirls around the individual. They are, uh, he or she make choices, 
in the accumulation of those choices uh, guide our public and private life. So for instance, according to the most simple democratic theory, each voter has her preferences, she make up her mind, she goes into the booth, close the screen, cast a vote, and the aggregation of those votes direct the political system. And according to the similar individualistic economic theory, consumerism sovereignty, each consumer votes not with a ballot, but with a dollar, where they, what they want to buy, and the aggregation of these votes guide the economy, and of course individual rights, by definition, are rights of individuals, not of groups. So we have on the one hand this image, uh, also uh, in our historical narrative of people jumping on the back of a horse, riding west, putting up stakes, and uh, making a living. I contrast this with a view which starts with Aristotle's line, that we are social animals. We are members of each other. We are deeply bounded. We are found not as individuals, but as members of families, of friendship, of communities, of tribes. And our very flourishing and well-being is dependent on our profound uh, linking to each other. And by the way, when we have set out west, we set out in caravans, not, not most of them on individual horses. We've set up villages. We raised barns together. We built communities. So now, if you look at the evidence, the way at least I see it, the issue has been settled. Because there's a mountain of evidence in favor of the second viewpoint. So if you look, for instance, at some of the old studies done in the high-rise building in Manhattan, in which senior citizens live and often don't know anybody down the corridor, we found a very high prevalence of mental illness. When people in prisons are put into solitary confinement, most of them are psychologically damaged very, very quickly. If you follow the recent stories about individual so-called active shooters, most of them turned out people who were very isolated and deprived of a social fabric. More than that, in order to uh, those reasonable people, which the individualistic theory assume, who can calmly make their own choices, uh, they are found in well-integrated communities, not when they're atomized. So the, uh, William Kornhauser, in his famous book on mass society, explained the way demagogues work is when they can appeal to people who have been cut off their social moorings. So point number one, community is essential. It's we flourish in communities, not otherwise. Forgive me, but uh, the way for me to remember that is the, the me needs the we to be. The me needs the we to be. Now, there is, forgive me for being personal here for a moment, I started writing 75 years ago, and I discovered there is a trick to writing, and I'm happy to share it with you, that if you are for A and against B, 
he can go full hog and attack B and bless A without any qualification. That makes for very easy copy. When you then start saying, but on the other hand, but it gets more complicated, uh, the copy gets very uh, messy, very quickly. But I also discovered that to be intellectually honest, you had to recognize it's not simple against a B. Life is complicated. The reason I'm telling this story is I just established that community is essential. I'm about to tell you that community is trouble. And here's the reason. Communities do one more thing other than providing essential social fabric. And they have a moral code. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons they're so productive is they organize good part of our life. We don't need a police to tell us that if we smoke in public, people will look down on us and we're not going to do that. We don't have a police to pick up, up, up our dogs. We realize that we're going to be embarrassed. So yes, the, at the margin, the police comes in. But if you look at enormous part of social business is done because we want to live up to the moral norms and expectations we share with others in our communities. So the communities are the, our moral enforcers. And that sounds all good, unless you realize that communities can embrace values which are fascist, authoritarian, illiberal. There can be communities of Nazis. Gangs make very tight communities. So on the one hand, community is essential. But on the other hand, we must find ways to ensure that they will not embrace values which are abhorrent to all of us. So here where the complexities come in, and again, I leave time for maybe come back to the discussion. But the, the trick is really to have communities embedded within our constitution. So we tell communities there are certain things you cannot do. You cannot discriminate, you cannot burn books, you cannot deny somebody the right to speak, but you can make them all turn off the music at 10 o'clock, uh, not hang out uh, too many flags. You can have thousand regulations as long as they don't violate what we consider in the political science language uh, our liberal values. So we, we need to find that way to protect communities from themselves so we will not end up enforcing our own values. Just two more points. and. Uh, Am I okay? Still okay? Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, so the other thing which Bill and I talked about often, and so I had opportunity to, to work with Bill on this, is the notion that we have not only individual rights, which indeed are inalienable and sacred, but we also have social responsibilities. And our responsibilities lie within our closer relationships. So let me make this not too, too, too complicated by telling you how I came across that insight. Uh, I was paying for my sins by trying to teach Harvard at the ethics at the Harvard Business School. Uh, I didn't do too well. And as I was preparing myself, I came across that finding that young Americans said that if they asked uh, if they're charged with a crime, is it important they'll have a right to ask for a jury trial instead of a jury by a judge? And also, of course, of course, it's one of our fundamental rights. 
And when they were asked if they would agree to serve on a jury, they said, look, I'm very busy, find somebody else. And this notion of entitlement of rights, which are incontestable, but not understanding that you're not going to have a jury of your peers if your peers will not serve, and they can't, don't really, can only take, but you also have to give. That escaped many of uh, that uh, generation. And once I started looking at that way, I saw it all over, all over the place. The overwhelming of a majority of Americans to date want more government service, uh, public uh, support for uh, parental leave, uh, for quality education, quality health care, but do not want to pay taxes. It's the same idea, give me, give me, give me, but I don't have to give anything uh, back. And Americans, at least in uh, 1991, were very proud of the way our military uh, defeat uh, Saddam very easily, but none of them want their children to serve. It's the same idea. So from this comes the most basic observation that social responsibility and rights go hand in hand. You cannot have well-anchored social rights unless they meet uh, also social responsibilities. And then we have a three-hour conversation. What happens when these two get into uh, conflict with each other, but for another day. Last, and that's probably the most uh, uh, difficult f to come to terms with. For many of us, our most important community is the nation. And that's a very troubling, I, I told you, communities are essential, but troubling. We all, I think, realize that many of the issues we face, from climate to pollution, to war, are global issues We cannot really be well handled by one country at a time, or even by these old-fashioned meetings where people have to meet for five years before they can act our treaty. That we need some global governance, if not global government. But on the other hand, we also realize that people are not willing to make the kind of sacrifices on commitments until they feel that they are a member of a community. People are willing to die, for, millions of people are willing to die for their country. Uh, nobody's willing to die for the European Union, which tried to create uh, a larger uh, uh, community. So if you like it or not, while in the longer run, we very much need a global community. At this stage, the foundation for communitarians on a level above the local community happens to be the nation. And let me close here. And we face exactly the same issue we face with the local communities. We cannot do away with nationalism, but we must be sure that it doesn't embrace the wrong kind of values. It doesn't become aggressive. Uh, it doesn't become hostile. So to close here on the goals uh, line, patriotism is the love of the country. That's good nationalism. Hating other nations is nationalism. So let me say, uh, Let's be patriots, let's not be nationalists. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Amitai. There's a, yeah, where I come from, there's a saying, and I'm going to say it in my language, uh, but it's exactly what uh, Amitai was saying in English. And it says, Umuntu, Ngumuntu, Gabantu. What it means is a person 
is a person because of other people. It's an old adage from where I come from. So I was a little surprised to find that it's a topic of discussion. Um, thank you very much, um, um, Amitai. But of course, you've put a whole lot of questions uh, on the table, which we will get to. Um, I have a, a little story with Bill Goldstein, which he didn't know. And I was just uh, sharing it with Isabel um, just before we started. In, in 2008, which is exactly 10 years ago, I came to South Africa to the Brookings, where I was a fellow for a little while. And somebody said, and I was trying to write a book about Mandela, which I'm still trying to write. That's another story. And somebody said, well, you should go talk to William Galston. And I tried to find my way through the Brookings until I got to his office, out at his door, and I had a whole list of questions ready. And we had a, a wonderful interview, and I was um, thinking uh, before, before I came here that actually he, he recommended to me a book which shaped fundamentally the work that I'm doing. It was a little book which I couldn't find anywhere by somebody called Hugh Hecklow. And it was called Thinking Institutionally. Now you can see how that can help me analyze Mandela. It was a very expensive book. I couldn't find it anywhere, but I finally found it. And I want to thank you for that because it really shaped my thinking. Uh, and we spoke about a whole lot of other things about leadership. And so when I was reading your latest book, uh, Anti-Pluralism, I was struck by the fact that you come back to this question of leadership. And I think this question of leadership has to do with how do you mediate with the good community and the bad community. And, and I, wonder, I wonder if you, you, and you do, of course, speak about how populism itself becomes a particular rendition of community as uniform, as one set of ideas. Um, but I wonder how, how you would respond to the moment we are now in American history, uh, where the notion of community and the notion of nation and the notion of race and group is actually uh, mobilized toward the particular idea of community. How does that stand in relation to how Americans have always understood themselves as beyond tribal? Well, um, there are a number of different ways of coming at your question. Uh, I'm tempted to quote Rabbi Hillel's most famous saying, which most people in the audience probably know, uh, but it amounts to saying that if you, you have to be for yourself. That's the beginning. Because if you're not for yourself, nobody's going to be for you. You have to know how to take your own side. But if that's all you are, you're incomplete. You've failed. You've failed as a human being, and you've failed morally. Now, translating it into the terms of tonight's discussion, yes, we are tribal, and for the theoretical reasons that Amitai stated, we must be because of how we're formed as human beings. But if we're only tribal, that's when the trouble sets in. So I would, put it, I would put it this way. When we use the word we, what do we mean? Right? We've already heard the prominence of the word we. But 
for, I think, every human being everywhere, there's no single answer to that question. We can say we and mean the family. We can say we and mean a, a neighborhood that we're particularly attached to. Uh, in many countries, we can say we and mean the tribe, quite literally. There are many countries that continue to organize collective identities around tribal names and tribal histories and tribal languages. And within limits, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we can say we and mean we, the people of a particular country, right? as the American Constitution famously does. Or we can say we and meaningfully mean the entire human race. And what I want to suggest is that each one of those meanings of the word we is real, necessary, and defensible. Uh, there's something about the we-ness of collective humanity uh, that's real, that's deeply implanted in us. I'll give you an example. That little, that little Syrian boy washed up on the beach, that three-year-old, remember that? The picture went around the world in minutes. You didn't have to be Syrian. You didn't have to speak Arabic. You didn't have to be a Muslim. You didn't have to be anything except a human being to respond to that picture. And so you know, it is true that there is a conflict between individualism and economic language, rights-best language, all of that, and community. But it's also true that there are conflicts among different meanings of the word, word we, right? Conflicts among communities before you ever get to the question of conflicts between individuals and communities. And so to apply this to our current moment, there is nothing wrong in principle with the statement, America first. Right? There isn't. America only is something else entirely. Uh, we are, you know, if, you're, if, if you're an official of the United States, I think you are not permitted to put your, your own country second. You're not permitted to say, well, I care about other people or other countries or humanity as a whole more than I care about my own country. You can say that, but if that's the way you really feel, you shouldn't be president of the United States. On the other hand, if you say, I don't care about anyone beyond our borders. I attach no moral weight to the fate of other people or the suffering of other people. That's their business. It is no concern of ours. Then you've made a fundamental mistake. You, know, you have incompletely described your identity. You have forgotten about one of the we's that we are members of. You've made a moral mistake. You've made a human mistake. And frankly, I don't, you know, although there's an aspect of universalism in the American creed, I don't think you have to be an American universalist to understand that there's a meaning of the word we that includes people, 
within our borders, but another equally defensible meaning of the word we that goes beyond them and goes beyond we the Westerners or we the children of the Enlightenment or we the children of Abrahamic faiths and includes everybody. And it's, and it's how we establish a relationship among those different, those nested identities, those nested we's, starting from the most intimate communities and going out to the fullest imaginable community that defines a debate that we're now having. Before I come to you, Isabel, let me push a little, just a little more. Um, in, in, again, in your, in your book, on your chapter on democratic leadership, the idea, of course, is that, right, the best leaders are those who are able to maintain this balance, right, between, you know, avoiding to fall either for individualism or excessive um, uh, group consciousness. And, 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 and you have that balance as kind of reasonable leader uh, playing that role, holding the community together. But what happens when the leader assaults the very idea of that liberal democratic balance, when the very institutions of Republican government come under assault by the leadership itself. In other words, instead of leaders being these pragmatic people who hold a community together, what happens when leadership actually plays the other role of actually undermining those very institutions of community, of Republican government? Well, um, Robert Frost famously defined a liberal as someone who could not take his own side in an argument. And in the, in the face of the kind of challenge you're talking about, we cannot be a liberal, we cannot be liberal in that sense, right? You know, people who believe in liberal democracy have to take their own side of the argument. They can't be neutral, they can't hang back from the fray, you know, because, you know, as Edmund Burke famously pointed out, when the bad associate <laughs> unless there's you know unless there's an organized pushback they'll get their way and so there's a very simple answer to your question and that is resist with every fiber of your being in the way that you believe will be most effective what else can you say and uh, you know and, and hope that that's enough uh, george washington was asked by a citizen well what have you know, what have you done in this secret convention uh, and is it going to work? And Washington replied, you know, we have raised a standard to which the wise and honest may repair. The event is in the hands of God. And so it is. Thank you. Uh, Isabel, in your book, uh, Forgotten Americans, uh, you, think, you think both the left and the right have got it wrong. That... that um, there needs to be a new way of building community, of building a national community. Um, and you speak about values, but you also speak about jobs, creating jobs and providing people with wages. Um, how could that kind of uh, approach speak to the current moment when you have actually more than just economic issues that are tearing apart? the American community. Well, like any author, I, I love to talk about my book. But before I get to my book, I want to say just a word about uh, Amitai and about a couple of things that Bill has begun to put on the table here. Um, 
I have known Amitai for a long time. And um, I did not appreciate him enough when I was much younger. Um, and I have come to recognize over time uh, not only his huge intellectual contributions, but the way in which he has always been in search of what you might call the good society. Uh, an awful lot of intellectuals, particularly people in academia, um, they are seekers of the truth, but they are not seekers of what is uh, the nature of a good society. How are our norms and our moral values connected to what we study? And how can we um, make our communities better? I mean, he founded the communitarian movement in the United States. I was thinking um, before I came here today, Amitai, that you did it too soon in the sense that when we really need it, which is now, um, it's not as much on the radar. And so I would really recommend that many people go back and read what you've written on these topics. And you reflected a lot of this in what you said at the beginning here. Um, I remember, by the way, one time I had an event at Brookings and you were invited and you came and one of my young colleagues at Brookings said, oh, Amitai Etzioni is coming? I'm going to get to meet him? She was just enthralled with the idea that she was going to get to meet you. I'm surprised I'm still around. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd never really thought of, you know, you were just Amitai to me, and suddenly I realized I had to pay attention to this uh, <laughs> towering person in a different way than I'd thought about you before. Anyway, I just wanted to say that um, it is an honor, a really an honor and a privilege to be here. And uh, you have done so many terrific things with your life. And I'm sure, by the way, don't ever think that just because somebody is 90, they've stopped contributing. I think Amitai is going to write his best work between now and the time he's 100. <laughs> So going back to um, uh, the topic here and to uh, Colella's uh, questions, um, first of all, on this whole question of balance between individualism on the one hand and um, community on the other, I believe it really is a balance. Uh, I don't want to lose sight of the individualist streak that came to us through the Enlightenment and that really undergirds uh, democracy and especially American democracy. I think we have to remember that in the Enlightenment, uh, which was a reaction to many, many uh, centuries before that, in which people did not have freedom. Uh, they certainly didn't have freedom of religion. They didn't have... Uh, the ability to move beyond their class, to move beyond their local community. And uh, we should celebrate that and we should recognize that it gave us this idea that we take for granted that any individual should get to plan their own life course and do what they think is right for them. And that underscores also the responsibility piece, which is 
we are self-governing. Government doesn't work if we don't make it work. And, you know, you talked about we have the responsibility to serve on a jury. We have a responsibility to vote. In midterm elections in the United States, less than half of the uh, eligible voters vote. And even in a presidential year, it's not a lot higher than that. So that's one of the problems here. If you're going to be a democracy and you're going to be self-governing, people have to be willing to get out there and do that. And then the third element, of course, is they have to be informed. So uh, another part of the uh, individuality and the enlightenment thinking that I think we have inherited is um, the facts matter and the objective reality matters. If you don't know what the objective reality is and what the facts are, how can you make a wise choice? How can you be self-governing? So um, just to say a word about your question about my book, which I appreciate. Uh, yes, I do talk in the book about values. I think that um, on the left-hand side of the polit political spectrum in America, there's been way too much emphasis on just laundry lists of programs and policies, and a lot of it has been you know, giving people stuff that they want and not asking them to do much of anything in return. Uh, we all remember that um, President Kennedy famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So I do think we've lost sight of that. I talk a lot in my book about the value of family, the value of education, and especially, above all, the value of work, because work is a value in the United States that is unifying. There is hardly anyone who's against the notion that we all deserve an opportunity to work, some rewards that go with that work, and the respect uh, that comes from contributing, and not to be um, left out, the social bonds and sense of community that comes from being part of a common endeavor, whether it's paid work or volunteer work or some other kind of work. So one of the things I call for in my book is a re-establishment um, of the idea of universal national service, either military or civilian. And I could wax on about that, but I won't right now. I, by the way, I combine it with a new twist on what is an old idea, and that is what I call an American domestic exchange program, in which we would ask families on a voluntary basis all across the country to open their homes to host a young person during their year of service, which would both keep the costs of national service low and create benefits for the young people who were serving, and as well as for the families who were hosting them by people getting to know each other from very different uh, backgrounds than the ones they normally associate with. Uh, well, I probably should um, stop at this point, but I, I just want to summarize and say we need the individualism, but we also need that to be balanced with the fact that we are social animals. Uh, Amitai gave some bits of evidence about that. I could give you more. 
Um, he mentioned that when prisoners are put in solitary confinement, that's one of the worst punishments you can uh, receive. Uh, but another piece of research is that children who are raised in orphanages where their physical needs are totally taken care of, but they don't get um, adult caring and nurturing, they don't thrive. They, they often actually die from lack of a human touch. So I really think that we, we, do, need, uh, we do need both. And um, on Bill's various kinds of we, I too think there are all kinds of different we's. And some of the we's are, have good values and goals, and some of the we's don't. You know, the Ku Klux Klan is one thing as a we, and the Boy Scouts is another. And we have to uh, make those distinctions uh, about good we's and bad we's, good tribes and bad tribes. I hope we can come back to that, because I have more thoughts on that. Thank you. Uh, maybe, Amita, you can come in here. I suppose the sense that I have, and, and I want to push this a little further, you know, um, Western society has been based basically, right, on these founding values, right, these ideas of, you know, the enlightenment to some extent, um, but basically the idea of reason, the idea of, you know, rationality, right? Uh, I mean, how much, how much does the current moment pose actually a fundamental threat to those very founding ideals? In other words, is the conversation that we are having here the very kind of conversation that is under attack as some kind of elite conversation. How, how do you engage in a moment when, when what are regarded as founding values, what are regarded as facts, uh, are no longer or are under attack? How do, you, how do you have a conversation about community in that kind of atmosphere? Well, thank you. Uh, again, I'll take a minute before I come. So first of all, Bill, thank you very, very much for your very, very generous uh, words. I remember I was working together on a task force on sex education in which we brought together some people both from the Christian right and from the uh, left. And after two days of conversation, we came out with a joint statement which they all signed, uh, which you can find on the internet called Education for Intimacy. We moved away from the idea that it's a plumbing issue to the, no, to the notion that it's a moral issue. And that's exactly, and I very much appreciate it. Indeed, uh, it's difficult in academic terms to have conversation about what's morally right, because supposedly we're not supposed to teach values. That's for the right. ministers. Uh, but at the same time, it's an essential part of a conversation. So I, I appreciate you bringing it up. And just a word about the we's. I'm sorry, no. Uh, I'm not against individuals. I'm against individualism. So, indeed, indeed. Uh, we, we have no problem here. No, no, I, uh, no we agree. I, yeah. I, I just, for purposes of elucidating here, was going to go a little bit more in that direction. Uh, indeed. So, uh, about the we's. So, here is really one of the issues of the day we get to your question. And that is often now discussed in terms of globalism. The question is, when you have competing ways, uh, what's the relative way to give them? And there is a danger that people will assume 
that we have committed to the global we, which I'm all in favor of, before it happened, and act as if we are already citizens of some kind of a world in which the United Nations is the government and the International Criminal Court uh, has their ultimate uh, jurisdiction. And so that, uh, the most obvious example of that is the European Union. The whole idea of the European Union was to form a community which is larger than a nation. But as more and more power was transferred to Brussels, the headquarter of the European Union, as more, less and less attention was paid to the fact that people are still, first of all, national citizens. The strongest we still national. We got into these uh, forces which invite populism. In my judgment, populism is in part a reaction to the overreach of globalism. And to give this a little uh, support. So for instance, uh, when Germany was unified, uh, the West Germans voted to give, in effect, to the East Germans every year the equivalent of $100 billion for 10 years. And by the way, they didn't get many thank yous. Uh, when they were asked to do something similar for Greece, they went berserk. So people willing to die for their country, uh, but not for the United Nations, not for the European Unions, which is just one indication how strongly people still feel about the nation. Is that desirable? No. If I had a magic lever and everybody would become a member of the biggest we, I'll put it. But ignoring it gets us into trouble. And just two examples, let me just save time, one example. This is the idea of free trade, which so many of my colleagues think of as a holy grail. First of all, uh, there never was free trade. It's a complete ideological weapon in fiction. All we have is different level of managed trade. If you read the uh, uh, NAFTA, supposedly it's called a free trade agreement. It's page upon page upon page, what you cannot do. You have to import things by people who earned at least $16 an hour. You have to protect the environment. The Mexican trucks can, so uh, all we have is trade is managed in different ways. Tariffs may be a particular bad way of managing it. But the notion that we should throw off, open our borders, and that we have to adjust to whatever comes in over the transom, and that the workers in West Virginia uh, have to move on and find a new job just because the market so said, so the, the rest of us can buy less expensive T-shirts. Uh, that's a question which deserves much more communitarian attention. So to close here. Uh, the, for the time being, nationalism, good nationalism, concern for your country, and as you said, it's okay for us to say first, not alone, uh, is, is very paramount, and simply trying to fly in face of it gets us the kind of demagogues uh, we now see in many countries. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it's one of the major factors. I... You know, <clears throat> One of, the, one of the signs of a real dialogue is that you find yourself taking positions or saying things that you didn't necessarily expect that you would say or come in prepared to say. Uh, and I am about to uh, reveal the dangers of thinking out loud on stage. But you know, first, you know, let, 
let me say, Amitai, that uh, you know, after you finished your opening remarks, you know, uh, you said, you know, enough with this birthday talk now. Let's you know, let, let's turn to the subject. You know, otherwise, I would have gone down Bell's Road uh, and talked about our 30 years of of, of colleagueship. Uh, I will say that I came. I came in prepared to issue the traditional Jewish blessing, may you live to 120, but I was afraid you would take it as an insult. Why am I trying to cut your life short? <laughs> so at any rate, uh, it's acceptable, very good. Very good. Let me, you know, but given the fact that so much of the current debate is now revolving around this issue of nationalism, which, which Amitai has discussed in, in terms that I fundamentally agree with, you know, I, would, you know, I would point out that in political terms, the question of what the nation is is by no means a simple one. We now talk about the unity of Germany. Well, as recently as 150 years ago, there was no unified Germany. I mean, that is a, you know, it's a political creation. France is a political creation out of many different regions and tribes that didn't want to be together and for a substantial period of time did not even have a common language. Uh, the idea that all the people in North America in 1787 could say, we the people of the United States was a contested proposition at the time it was uttered and we fought a civil war for the right to say that phrase and mean it. That's what it took. It was by no means a slam dunk that there wouldn't be 13 little countries instead of one extensive one. So, you know, and there was, there was a big debate at the time of the American founding. When we say we, do we mean everybody who is white in North America without, you know, without distinction of state identity? Or do we mean we the people of the 13 states? That was a distinction with a difference. All of, this, all of this is to say, and I absolutely agree with you, that the Europeans got out over their skis in assuming a we the, we the people of Europe that was not real. On the other hand, the question of what the right unit is for purposes of the nation is inherently contested. And sometimes, sometimes you make a nation real by proposing it and acting as though it is real and making its reality a project. And I think that's what the Europeans tried to do. They went too far, but was the principle e pluribus unum wrong in principle? No. It just turned out not to be practical in practice. It was by no means clear that in the case of the United States that it would turn out to be practical in practice, and it almost wasn't. So, you know, so when we, uh, I guess my lesson is when we talk about the nation, we should, th we should think not just in snapshot terms, but historically about how that unit has shifted for different peoples over time. Just one you know, one more reflection along these lines. Everybody can quote the famous section of the Declaration of Independence that we says we take, we, we take these truths to be self-evident. And by the way, can you have a country that doesn't take some truths to be self-evident? I don't think so. 
Uh, and what happens, what happens when it's no longer fashionable within a country to take any truths as self-evident? That's, that's a big problem. We all quote that passage. We don't pay any attention to the way the Declaration of Independence opens. When, it be, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people, one people, before you ever get to individual rights, we're already talking about a people as the unit within which these rights are going to be secured and enacted. And so we have to think about that relationship, which is really primal and primary. You know, that, you know, that the individual rights that the Declaration of Independence talks about are asserted and protected within the assumption that there is a people that is doing the asserting and protecting. So one of the, one of the um, George Washington was famously skeptical about political parties. And, and in, in, in many ways, um, I want, to, I want to ask about a different kind, what seems to me at least to be a different kind of tribalism in, in the United States, the Republican, Democrat. Again, it's something that we've inherited from history. At what point um, do, do you ask yourselves as a, as a society um, whether that conception, what is it that we need to do when that conception, when that institution begins to eat into the idea of community. Um, and I mean, now, right now, the American government is closed, right? And, and it has a whole lot to do, it seems to me, with these warring identities. Uh, okay, that's, of course, the big, small question of the war, right? But, but it, it seems to me, I'd like you to address to this tension between the political party as it is today uh, and the idea of, of, of community? Uh, it's a great question, and um, I think that there is evidence that people are beginning to use political party as a source of identity in a way that they didn't used to, and that that is contributing to our divisions and our tribalism. By the way, tribalism has a very negative connotation. When I think about the adjective that most often comes before tribes, it's warring. Tribes are warring. Whereas when you use the word community, which is the same thing, um, you think about tight-knit community. And so even our cliches uh, explain to us that there are good and bad forms of tribalism. And uh, so going back to politics, I uh, was struck by the data that I learned when I was doing research on my book, which is how people feel when their adult child marries someone from the opposite political party in America. Uh, it used to be that people really weren't bothered by that. Now they are. Now about 50% of adults say they would be very troubled if their child married someone from the opposite political party. I, I've, I've sometimes noticed that if they, if they remade Guess Who's Coming to Dinner today, yeah, 50 right. years later, <laughs> it would be a very different film. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And which brings me to a related point, and that is one of the things that used to dampen down political polarization, especially here in Washington, D.C., was that people came to serve in Congress they brought their families, they socialized with one another. They got to know each other as individuals, and that really um, 
dampened the extent to which they demonized each other. You don't demonize someone that you just had dinner with. And every former member of Congress that I've ever talked to um, says that this is part of the problem. And you don't even think about that as being part of the problem, but, uh, but it is. Another example, uh, I have a, quite a number of Republican friends, and I would call them Republican no-Trumpers, most of them. Uh, and when I think about what divides the political parties, it used to be disagreements over policy, over what should be done. Now, increasingly, I think it's really about moral values and character and temperament and what it takes to be fit to be president and disagreements about that. And the Republican no-Trumpers, if you will, are, I would submit, closer to traditional Democrats than Trump Republicans are to no Trump Republicans. Now, you know, somebody could disagree with that, but because I don't mean that policy doesn't matter. Uh, by the way, in my book, along with my conservative values, my red state values, I have a lot of blue state policies, uh, which I won't get into, but you can read the book. Uh, so, yes, I think political parties are becoming a source of identification in, a, in an unhealthy way. You know, I come from a, obviously, a, a, a very young democracy, South Africa. The good thing, of course, we had Mandela. Um, but a friend of mine the other day, you know, sent me a, um, I was, I, I sent him a text. I said, you know, how are things back home? And I said, no, things are fine, except that, you know, um, we're still stuck with Zuma, even though he's no longer president. And then his, his, his sign of line was, well, that's the power of nationalism, of, in, in that particular case, particular kind of ethnic nationalism. So, so, so these, are, these are questions, I suppose, Amitai, the next, next book uh, I'm suggesting between now and one, when you are 120, is, is you know, how are these, all these kind of centrifugal forces, what would they mean for the idea of, for the communitarian idea? Because when you were writing back then, right, we were not talking about fake news and, and all these other things. And, and many, of the, many of the factors that we've had in the past, like leadership, right? There was a George Washington, right? There, were, there was a respect for institutions. Um, many of those things are kind of up in the air right now. So how do you how do you think about community when those issues are being contested the way that they are? Well, let me answer briefly to leave you also time for the audience. Uh, uh, but uh, first of all, uh, I have good news in effect. You will not have to wait thirty years for my next book. The summer, uh, University of Virginia will publish a book called In Defense of Patriotism, which will uh, speak to some, but that's probably going to be the last one for a while. But, uh, that's, that's what you said, Amitai, when I got this book last summer. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I, I want to go very briefly to the question which, in effect, we had in one of our prior civil dialogues in which we had Trump supporters and Trump opponents have a, a civil conversation. 
And the question came up, how do we think, not about Trump, that's easy, what do we think about Trump supporters? And many of my colleagues uh, think about them as bigoted, racist, uneducated people. And I think that's a tragic mistake. I think they have been, uh, first of all, I think we Hillary should... Clinton learned that lesson well uh, yes. when she called them the deplorables. Indeed. Uh, it was uh, attending results. But it's not simply a political loss. It's unwise to write off one third of the population. It's a moral issue. I think, first of all, in principle, everybody's redeemable. And so our job is to reach out to these people and then condemn them and write them off. But... Uh, you can't sound paternalistic when you do it. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, but, but one just... There are many reasons they feel aggravated. But I think we should not underestimate one reason which Norman Ornstein has written a lot about, and that is our representative system no longer represents. And so too much of our representative system is response to people with deep pockets. So if you are uh, uh, one of the, those not represented uh, by one of those uh, uh, hedge fund lobbies or such, you may not understand the process why the government is not responding to you, why allows drug prices to go through the ceiling, uh, 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 why it allows corporations to wreak abuse after abuse, and then they have an agreed consent to promise to behave better in the future instead of going to jail. So you, you may not understand why that is that way, but you feel in your guts that the government no longer represents you. So I think the answer to rebuilding community is first of all, not right of anybody, not be dismissive elitist, and second, reform our system of representation so it'd be more responsive to the public and less to deep pockets. Let me close with, with, uh, with, with one question on this issue. Um, there's, a, there's a thesis that's made by, um, there's a book called Identity Crisis, uh, which, which tracks uh, voting patterns in the, in the 2016 elections. And, and, and the argument uh, that these uh, authors make is, is, is that the reason Trump, that there was no necessary correlation between economic anxiety and racial attitudes. That, that, what, what, that the, in fact, the, what Trump was able to do was to draw on racial anxieties. And the, the political system as it is, right, um, because we're, a, we're beyond tribe, we're beyond groups, right? The political system as it is does not allow for group representation. It doesn't allow for a situation where you can say, you know what, we've got these angry people over here and they, these are their issues and there is a channel for them to actually express those issues. So what do you do, it seems to me, in a, in a situation where on the one hand, you have your, your, vote, your voting issues, your, your, your bread and butter issues, but there's still the big question of race, for example, uh, in, in, in the United States. Uh, you, you're ready to go, to go with that? Yeah, I'm ready to go on that one. Uh, because you know, I don't want to get into a detailed exegesis of that very good book, but 
the thesis is more complex than racial anxiety. One of the, one of the major uh, features and emphases of that book is the power of the immigration issue in, sh in shaping contemporary uh, political conflict. Why is the government shut down as we speak? This is not a classic racial conflict between, let's say, Southern and Northern Democrats 50 years ago, right? This is a conflict about different, uh, about different conceptions of what we would like to be when we say we. Uh, it's in part a conflict over specific public policy. It's in part a conflict over a fact which some people celebrate and others do not, that the fundamental demographic texture and balance of the country as the result of 50 years of relatively open immigration has been changed fundamentally. And some people are finding a place in America for the first time as a result of that, and others are worried that they're losing their place in America after generations of centrality in the American story. And by the way, there's a lot of evidence that in the UK, the Brexit vote was driven as much by immigration fears as by economic anxiety. As a matter of fact, when the issue was the economy, the Remain forces were prevailing. It is when the Leave forces turned issues of immigration and national sovereignty that they began to gain ground and move to their ultimate victory. Why has there been an explosion of populism in Europe in recent years? It is primarily a response to the, you know, the immigration and refugee crisis of five years ago and the way in the first instance Angela Merkel responded to that and then the way the other countries of Europe organized their politics around responding to her open door policy. Uh, so I reject the distinction between bread and butter issues as the voting issues and then all of these other issues. All of these other issues are voting issues. They're political mobilization issues. They are divisive issues. They're explosive issues. And they are the principal issues of our time, in my opinion. Now, I could tell another story having to do with globalization and the economic consequences of globalization, the rolling collapse of the traditional manufacturing economy throughout the West in the past 30 years, the collapse of the, collapse of the traditional working class, uh, the abandonment of the working class by center-left political parties and the political hegira of the working class, which moved right but didn't stop at the center, went all the way over to the populist nationalist parties. So that's a part of the story too. Uh, but at the very least, this conflict over immigration and demography, demography is a co-equal narrative in telling the story of the rise of populism. I more or less agree with uh, what Bill has just said. I never can say it as eloquently as he does, but let me put it in my own words. I think um, I'm going to bring up the fact that uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, talk show host, Fox News, many of you I'm sure have know of him or have seen him, comes out with a monologue this week saying that it's time for conservatives to get on board and understand that they're not going to have a future in this country unless they have an agenda or some empathy for this group that has been left behind, the 
you know, so-called white working class, and yes, it does tend to be the white working class that conservatives are more sympathetic with, even though they are better off economically than uh, blacks and Hispanic Americans. But um, the, I see some, at least in the intellectual community, I don't put Tucker Carlson, by the way, in the intellectual community. I don't <laughs> think he puts himself there either, but I could give you a lot more esoteric uh, examples that do come from the intellectual community. I believe the ice is beginning to crack there. I, be I believe that conservatives in this country are going to rebuild their philosophy and their agenda. It's badly broken now. This is why I made this big thing about uh, no Trump Republicans versus Trump Republicans. So I'm, I'm hopeful, and I guess I wanted to end a little bit with um, a hopeful thought here. Uh, what Tucker Carlson is saying, though, to his fellow conservatives is if we don't grab this, by the way, this is about uh, this group that went so heavily for Trump, uh, they're a big chunk of the voting population. And they are up for grabs because, as Bill, I think, said, uh, the left, the Democratic Party, has kind of ignored them and become overly elitist. And unless the Democratic Party can regain at least some of that group, they're not going to do well. And what's happening on the right is the right is also beginning to think harder about how they can actually uh, do something for this group. So it's going to be an interesting uh, next half decade or so, in my view. And I think we shouldn't be so focused on, um, you know, Trump, 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 and everything that's going on right now, and all the tweeting, uh, to ignore the fact that there's a longer-term story here. We did have, just in my view, personal view, excellent leadership under Obama, um, a majority of the population voted for him, so we can't be a completely racist country. Uh, and uh, I don't want to minimize that issue, but I do want to suggest a more hopeful um, framing uh, going forward. Amitai, you want to have the last word? By the way, you should read uh, Bell's work because among all the economists, she understands culture and values better than any other economist I know. We had, again, to go back to one of the previous civil dialogues, and they're all, you can see them all on tape. We had this discussion among the left. And we had on one hand uh, uh, Bob Kuttner, who is the editor of the American Prospect, saying that basically what we need is a long list of economic uh, moves which will uh, take care of the Trump problem once these workers will get decent jobs, well-paying jobs, health care, education, so on and so on. Uh, the problem will be over, and Michael Kazin kept saying, wait a moment, there are also cultural issues. And that deserves another minute, because if you, obviously we're going to have over the next two years a debate not only between Democrats and Republicans, but very much within the Democratic Party, and one of the axes on which this debate is very much on that question. If you go back what you heard on the last days from the various candidates, they almost completely talk about economic issues. And there seems to be no sensitivity that people don't live by bread alone, and that their people have identity issues and cultural issues, and they are challenged uh, by various interpretations 
of individual rights, when it comes to gay marriage and so on and so on. I'm all in favor of expanding rights, but it's a process in which you have to involve people and uh, we need to hear more about the cultural issues. Of course, not instead of the economic ones, but in addition. All right, uh, thank you very much. Let's give the panel a round of applause. So I think there are mics um, in different parts of the hall. If you have a question, please, uh, please step up to the mic. The mic microphone here, and I think the, are there any microphones at the back, or is it the only one? Yeah, there's a microphone here. I believe the, it, the, the proceedings are being recorded, so you have to speak to your mic. While we're waiting but for But also, the... I would please ask, sorry, please keep your questions very, very short so we can get as many people as possible. I'm a university student at the moment, um, and when I first transitioned to college, I uh, felt a um, something missing, a lack of belonging, um, and I didn't feel tied to a community anymore, um, partly because I'm not religious, I didn't join a sorority, I'm not on a sports team, things like that. Um, but I, I wonder, but then later I found communities that had the values that I wanted to espouse. Um, and part of it was creating those communities myself, um, but not everyone has that opportunity. And I wonder what your advice is to people going through big life transitions where they may feel unmoored and like they're no longer a part of a community and they're seeking maybe a, a, a new tribe whether it's important to just join the first one, like join a fraternity um, so that you have a group of brothers, um, or to do the most prestigious thing um, and you know uh, go into consulting right after college because um, that's <laughs> what everyone else is doing, um, or whether it's better to chart your own path um, and risk mental illness due to isolation. takers I think the question does speak actually to well, my passion I think it does speak to the question of of leadership and 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 where what the different levels of leadership that people can can play um, too often um, you know we look at leadership only at the national level but I think the question is how do you how do you build that kind of broad Based kind of leadership. You, you know, what struck me most about what you said was that when you didn't find an existing community that was aligned with your own uh, views and values, you created one. Now, that's hard to do, granted. So uh, I don't want to wave my arms and say, oh, yeah, everybody should do that. I just want to commend you for having... Um, solve the problem in that way. I think more people uh, should do that. I mean, age, individual agency to create your own community is something I think we often forget. Uh, I've been uh, fascinated by a book called Evolution, Games, and God, the Principle of Cooperation. 
I've always thought of evolution as having survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog -dog kind of stuff, but cooperation was a huge part of it. And I'm just wondering, it seems like nobody cooperates in our government anymore. It seems just such a big lack of a simple, almost kindergarten concept of cooperating to get things done. I wondered if you'd like to talk about that. I'll just say briefly that it's interesting that um, none of us discussed that I can recall the whole notion that evolution itself uh, and the people who have studied it have given us the idea that without that cooperation, we don't survive. So it's kind of built into our DNA, the need to cooperate with other human beings, because without that, uh, we wouldn't have even physically survived. So we have this psychological need in a contemporary society, but it goes way, way back in evolutionary uh, theory. Uh, you, 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 you mentioned earlier that we should have some hopeful uh, notes. So we should note that even in this period of polarization, with all the evidence you mentioned, both parties agreed on reducing sentencing. Uh, both parties, in effect, had a deal on immigration between some enhanced border security and more acceptance of the uh, dreamers, unless it was, it was shot down by the president. But you, you had both parties collaborating. I think there are many other issues on which, even in these hard times of division, we could get collaboration if you could get to some sanity in the White House. You know, uh, the, the whole question of how do you scale up, you know, these little uh, activities is always a, 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 a big question. Good evening. Thank you for your, uh, your dialogue. It was very insightful, and I've taken a lot of notes from it. One of my notes I actually took into develop into a question was, how would, uh, as leaders within our community, or just as civilians within our community in general, how do we revitalize the, uh, the strong belief of social responsibility within the community? Uh, how do we uh, uh, inspire and enable the notions that compromise among parties and among communities and people of differences uh, is viable in the modern era when things, as many have said, are rather uh, uh, tense at the moment? Thank you. Well, I'll give you just my top-of-the-head response. The single, the single, uh, I'll put it in the context, for instance, of a college campus. The single most important thing that young Democrats and young Republicans can do, young liberals and young conservatives, whatever the names of the clubs and the organizations are, get together. Uh, don't operate in your own hermetically sealed worlds. Have a debate. Have a series of debates. You know, learn, you know, learn the difficult art of dealing with a conflict in a human, in, in a human and humane way. 
Right? That's not something that's not something necessary that we're born knowing how to do. We may have an instinct for cooperation, but that instinct needs to be developed through practice. And it needs to be developed through the experience of conflict and you know, some of the traumas of conflict. Uh, the worst thing we can do, the enemy of social responsibility and of social cooperation, is to seal ourselves off from people who are different from us. And there is all too much of that going on. And unfortunately, it's a vicious cycle because you know, as, you know, as the people who are different from us become more and more distant from us, we fear them more. We fear the unknown, and they become unknown. Uh, and a lot of what happened in, in American politics in recent years is that an entire part of the country became unknown, terra incognita, to the other part of the country, and then suddenly we had to rely on reporters to do anthropological inquiries for us so we could begin to understand our fellow citizens. I mean, this is, this is the sign of a profound failure to just be together in the same rooms across our differences and begin, begin to learn about each other that way. And Belle Sawhill in her book has to recommend a domestic exchange program in order to, in, in order to make up for the shortfall of the indigenous and more spontaneous practices in our society, which should be integrative but have acted as to segregate us one from another. Some of it is screen time, too much screen time. <laughs> By the way, uh, there was something in South Africa in the 1980s uh, called koinonia. And koinonia did exactly what, what you're suggesting. So it's, it's, one, it's one model of how people actually reached out across the racial barriers in the 1980s. Hi, thank you all, and congratulations, Amitai. You're beloved by everyone in this room. Um, Bell Sawhill said something in passing that struck me as extremely wrong, but then I couldn't figure out why, and I wanted to invite you, Amitai, to comment on it, which is that tribalism and communitarianism are two words for the same thing, but one is a positive spin, one has a negative spin. I've always thought that, that tribalism is what happens when communitarianism breaks down, that they're in some sense deeply antagonistic forces. I just wondered if you could reflect on the difference. Uh, this is was our colleague, Jonathan Rauch. Uh, the way I think about it is actually not that different from Bell, that uh, we always look for terms to define what we approve of and what we disapprove of, talking about the same social entity. So we call good communities communities because it brings to our mind kumbaya and warm uh, sentimental uh, feeling who is against community. And uh, on the other hand, tribal does bring to the mind. But we, in both cases, we talk about people who are strongly bonded and who are uh, in one case, support values which we find deserve our respect, and on the other hand, uh, underlying values uh, we challenge. I would agree with Jonathan that uh, we're talking about, in effect, and again, don't want to make this too much of an academic seminar in the last minutes, we really talk about liberal communitarianism. We really want the kind of communities which respect rights as they respect bonds. 
And tribalism indeed is a breakdown in that sense of liberal communitarianism. Um, since, as you mentioned, so much of our debate modernly has become about uh, moral values and the differences in those across our nation, what can we do to kind of put ourselves in a different frame of reference for somebody who doesn't share our exact moral values, and how do we find things to compromise on so that we both feel that we are accomplishing things for the good of our nation? Take all the questions, and then, and then <clears throat> this is kind of tall. But um, my question is, you guys were talking about the EU and how the French and Italian will always save, them, save themselves before they save the EU, and this notion of how community sometimes when it's stretched too big, it might not work. So I was wondering if you could talk about, or give us your thoughts about how if community can ever trump individual, 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 hmm, individualism, individualism, yeah, and if it's possible to actually make this community how like the EU was originally made for and, and if it's just destined to fail. Thank you. Community can trump individualism. Oh, there's a last question. Good evening. Uh, hi. Uh, Ms. Sawhill, I know you, you mentioned kind of this distinction between uh, the conservatives, Republicans, and the non-Trump Republicans, uh, and I do appreciate that distinction. Uh, but I know I think both parties have kind of acknowledged that uh, the Republican Party has become very fractured, uh, wherein uh, kind of these different caucuses and groups are uh, alienating each other and uh, almost kind of warring against each other. Uh, so I was curious as the panel's thoughts as, as to what needs to be done to really kind of uh, reunite or re-strengthen the Republican Party, uh, or if it is beyond repair. Uh, just a question. Thank you. Uh, here's how I propose. Uh, we have two minutes to go. So um, here's how I propose. I will just say a little bit and then we'll go around and then Amitai will have the last word. Um, it seems to me, you know, academics, right? Um, we have these fads from time to time. I mean, does anybody remember, you know, there was a time when everybody was writing about civil society? Like there was civil society all over the place. There were books about civil society. But as I was listening to some of these uh, comments today, it does seem to me that they harken back to some of those ideas about how, how do people get connected from the student on the, on the university campus to people in associations and right away up to the leadership. Uh, it, that's at least one of you know, the issues that I, uh, that I take away, is how do we take the positive that you were talking about, uh, examples, and actually scale them up? And what kind of leadership you need to do that at all levels of society. Seems to me that's a challenge. But, um, Bill, do you want to go ahead and then Isabel and then I will uh, have Amitai? Well, I'm, I'm going to take just one of these questions, right? Namely, can communities trump individualism? And I'll just say flatly, yes. And they do it all the time. And then the question is, what happens next? Uh, and what distinguishes a liberal society from an illiberal society is the fact that in a liberal society, when a community trumps individualism in the way that some individuals find profoundly distasteful and repressive, they have the right to leave. 
and seek out other forms of community that are more consistent with what they think makes life worthwhile and meaningful. And real tragedies occur when people are imprisoned in communities that will not allow them the right of exit when community becomes repressive of what makes them most human in their own eyes. And we must defend that right at all costs. Communities cannot, within a liberal society, cannot become prisons. And we have tragedies playing out on the world stage when certain kinds of communities within illiberal societies become imprisons for young women, for example. And then the question is, does anybody have the responsibility and the power to help them leave? Uh, so I'll take the uh, rebuilding the Republican Party to say a few more things. Um, and I think that it's going to happen uh, within the intellectual community before it happens in mainstream politics, um, and already is to some extent. I think it also is going to happen at the state-local level before it happens at the national level. Um, you know, you take Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, uh, and he sounds pretty reasonable to me. Uh, governor Kasich came to the launch of my book at Brookings, and he, without even being asked, made a statement that uh, some of us found quite surprising. He said, if there's anybody out there that doesn't like immigrants, please send them all to Ohio. This is a sitting Republican governor. Uh, now, granted, those are you know, green shoots and not the entire forest yet, to say the least. Um, ben Sass, um, interesting senator from uh, Nebraska, has just written a book called Us Versus Them. And so it talks quite a bit about the same themes that we've been talking about up here, including the importance of civil society. Uh, and his basic thesis is we're all lonely. I mean, even when we're with other people, we feel lonely. And that unless we learn how to connect to whatever communities are meaningful to us, including having to maybe create our own, uh, we are not going to get beyond that. And then it comes back to what Bill said about building habits of uh, participating in a community, that this is not something, uh, yes, it's in our DNA, but it takes practice. Couldn't agree more, and which is why I like this national service idea, et cetera. So, uh, you know, my final um, somewhat optimistic, maybe you'll think it's Pollyannish comment, is... Sometimes opportunity grows out of crisis. I believe the country is in crisis right now, but I believe that maybe there will be so much concern about it that eventually we will get back not just onto a decent track, but an even better track than we were on before. I also just take the question about uh, how are we going to talk about morality? And I did a little study of that, and I found to my surprise that nations can have moral dialogues. I mean, my initial sense is that you have a moral dialogue maybe around a dinner table, and maybe a group of 20, but the notion that 300 million plus people can have a moral conversation, frankly, sounded me at first absurd. And then I start looking 
what happened with Rachel Carlson, Silent Spring, which triggered a, a national dialogue about the question, what do we owe Mother Earth? And there was a billion-hour buzz in conversation, which was not idle. It leads to a new shell moral understanding, which led Nixon to establish the Environmental Protection Agency, the civil rights movement, the uh, environmental movement, the women's movement. Uh, all these are, uh, me too, do I need to say more, are moral conversations, which are not idle conversations. They lead to new shared understandings and to new changes in behavior. Uh, let me take all this opportunity to thank the panel, and above all, to all of you who came out in a, where we have warning of freezing inclement weather and universities are closed, the government is closed, and you call, came to join us for a civil dialogue. It couldn't have been a happier birthday. Thank you all. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Arena on Air. For more information on the Arena Civil Dialogues series and to see all of our upcoming events, please visit arenastage.org slash civil dialogues. The Arena Civil Dialogues is powered by Exelon. Thank you.